This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Today's episode of the Moranalytics podcast is brought to you by Paul Cellular. Paul Cellular was created to give a better option for everyone looking for premium wireless phone service for less cost with straightforward plans, no strings attached, no confusing fine print. Paul strives to be the best value in wireless while supporting their customers with the service that they deserve and that they expect. Their mission's quite simple, to provide the best user experience possible for everyday life. They got you covered nationwide in the U.S. with unlimited talk, text, and premium, fast LTE data plans, Hotspot coverage with no additional cost in all 50 states and the U.S. Caribbean regions with additional coverage available in both Canada and Mexico. Plans also include unlimited free Wi-Fi calls internationally when calling U.S. lines and unlimited text and data across 210 countries. There are no credit checks. There are no contracts. There are no overage costs. You could just live life and focus on you. Life is better with Pulse. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moran Analytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. All right, what's going on, podcast fans? How you doing? What's up? Welcome to episode number 121 of the More Analytics Podcast, presented by Paul Cellular. Today's Tuesday, May 21st. Got a nice show in store for you today. Going to talk a little hockey. Whenever I want to talk hockey, there's only a small handful of people that I try to get in touch with to come on this show. One of them is... This is my guest today, Chris Baker. Matter of fact, Chris is going to make history today. He's the first ever three-time featured guest on the Moranalytics podcast. That's history, folks. I'm sure it's an achievement that Chris holds near and dear to his heart. It'll go down as one of his all-time career highlights. <laughs> Seriously, though, we're going to talk some Sabres, of course. They made a head coaching change. Paul Kruger is in, new Buffalo Sabres head coach. I'm going to get his take on him. Talk a little bit about why he thinks that Phil Housley just didn't work out in Buffalo. We'll run down some of the younger guys on the roster. Chris will give us his thoughts on where he thinks they're headed. We'll talk about Jeff Skinner, if he thinks that he's going to be back, what it's going to take to get him back. And the NHL draft's coming up next month. And I'm going to be honest with you, man. I, I couldn't tell you two people that are in the NHL draft. Fortunately, that's why I get guys like Chris Baker on this podcast because he drops a straight-up education on a handful of guys that he expects the Buffalo Sabres to be looking into with that seventh pick that they do hold. Which again, draft starts June 21st. Really good conversation with Chris. He is without question one of the greatest hockey minds that I've ever met and just a really Really cool dude. So pumped to have him on the show for a third time. I'll have that for you. Also, movie review day. John Wick Chapter 3. I'm not reviewing the movie. Trust me, you don't want me reviewing movies. I got my man Sean Chandler from the Sean Chandler Talks About YouTube channel. He's kind enough from time to time to let me use his clips for a movie review on this podcast. Go check out his YouTube channel, which by the way, it's sensational. Again, it's called Sean Chandler Talks About. It's got like 111,000 subscribers on his channel, and it's growing daily and for very good reason. He just pumps out really good content daily. 
You know, a lot of YouTubers out there, they put out daily content, but few do it well. And few do it better than Sean Chandler. He's really, really good. And this is a non-spoiler review. So I'm going to let you know that as well. You can listen to the review and not have to worry about having any plot lines really spoiled for you. So I got both of those things coming up. Oh yeah, one last thing. I was going to have a full Game of Thrones series finale wrap up on this podcast, but I'm going to wait and do that on Friday's episode. And here's why. My guy, Joe, Buffalo Wins on Twitter, the guy that I do the Running With Joe segment on most Friday episodes, he's the big Game of Thrones guy. And to be honest with you, if I kind of did it right now, Without him, with somebody else, or by myself, I'd feel dirty about it. I want to save that for him. So we'll do that on Friday's episode. We'll run down the finale, what we thought of it. I'm sure our opinions are differing on that. In fact, I guarantee you that they are. We'll talk about the last season. We'll talk about the series as a whole, what we really ended up loving, and maybe a couple things that fell short. We'll have some fun. Maybe we'll do a couple fantasy things where we'll create our own Fantasy World spinoffs from how the show ended. Things like that. We'll do that on Friday's show. I also plan on having a Buffalo Bills sports media guest on Friday's episode as well. But anyway, that's Friday. So Game of Thrones, Buffalo Bills stuff on Friday's show. Let's get down to business for today's podcast. Here's my interview with Chris Baker, followed immediately by a movie review of John Wick Chapter 3. All right, my guest is a contributing writer at The Athletic and widely known as one of the best hockey minds in the business, especially when it comes to the prospects end of it. More importantly than any of that, he is, and you don't even know this right now, I'm telling you this for the first time, you are literally, with this appearance, the first ever three-time featured guest on the Moranalytics podcast. It's up to my man, Chris Baker. Dude, congratulations on making huge podcast history right now. This is, wow, this is wild. It's a highlight, uh, isn't it? Boy, I'll tell you. I mean, I don't even know uh, what's next for you after this. I mean, <laughs> I don't even know what's next for me. I mean, I feel like I've hit the peak now in, in my uh, little career that I have going on here. But, well, I, hey, but regardless, Pat, nice to be back with you here again. <laughs> I'm joking. Man. Well, I'll tell you what. I'm not joking about you being the first ever three-time featured guest on this show. That's pretty cool. And, all right, so listen, when the Sabres hired Ralph Kruger last week. I had already two shows that were booked that had nothing to do about hockey. So I didn't get an opportunity to have someone on to talk about it or talk about it myself. And you're one of those guys that I always, whenever something goes down with the Sabres, whether it's a coaching move or a personnel move, one of the prospects, you're one of those first guys that I always think of. So when it came around to this week, I gave you a call pretty much on no notice and said, you know, can you hop on? talk a little Kruger, talk a little Sabres with me. And as always, man, you gave me your time. That's one of the things that I've always appreciated about you, man. You're, you're really generous in giving time. That's really cool. You Pat, there's a fraternity of old school Buffalo people. And you're kind of in that little circle that we were in gosh, 10 years ago. I always got time for you, man. (laughs) Well, I really do appreciate you, man. All right. So let's jump into some Buffalo Sabres talk for that though, real quick. Fans who want to go back and listen to the archives, I've had you on the show twice before. The first time was kind of like a a meet and greet type of interview where I gave fans an opportunity to know a little bit more about you besides just the excellent hockey work that you've done through the years. You know, your story, growing up in Western New York, how you got involved with hockey, stuff like that. That was fun. And then the second time I had you on was the very beginning of October, which was right before the Buffalo Sabres season began this last season. So. We'll hit on some of that stuff in just a few minutes. But before that, the Sabres do hire a new head coach, Ralph Kruger. I'm going to be completely honest with you. And I think I speak for at least a nice, decent portion of casual Buffalo Sabre hockey fans. I don't know nothing about Ralph Kruger, really. I know that he coached for one season, not even a full season in Edmonton about five or six years ago, and that didn't work out for him. So my knowledge on him is very limited. I'm sure yours isn't. Tell us more about new Sabres head coach, Ralph Kruger. You know, when you go back and you look at international hockey at the past 15-ish years, um, there's been one country that's made huge leaps in just growing their program, both at 
you know, the U18, U20 level, and even on the, you know, the Olympic level in the men's, men's space. And it's Switzerland. And that's really the, the breeding ground for all of Ralph Kruger's uh, hockey ideology, his systems, his, the way that he communicates and helps develop human beings and hockey players. And I, I don't think of him as the guy that coached the Oilers. And, you know, he was uh, an assistant on their bench for a couple of years. And then, you know, I think he got tanned, frankly, probably a little prematurely. If you talk to some of those players that played for him, mm-hmm. I think about a guy that has taken something from uh, nothing and really built it into something in Switzerland and his, the, the hallmark of his philosophy. And, and I've had uh, an opportunity to, to trade messages with people that have played for him, that know him uh, closer and maybe just playing for him in a, in a you know, a, a World Cup tournament like Vanek. They've, you know, Thomas, Thomas Vanek's been making the rounds. Right. He played for him for a brief, you know, a small tournament. I, I've talked to some people that have been closer to him for an extended period of time. They they talk about his mix of old and new school. So he's that he can be that old school hard ass when he needs to. But he can also be that new school guy that has to be a little bit gentler. Maybe I'm more of a listener. He can massage each guy in a different way and, and kind of gets to each of them the way that they, they need to be spoken to or dealt with to get the most out of them. And I think that's really important to mention. I think when you're looking at the Sabres team, because, you know, you, you may want to talk a little bit about maybe a compare and contrast with Housley. And I don't want to jump the gun on that, but I think you're going to, you're going to see a guy here who I don't think his message will get lost with his players because his message is going to be tailored each and every one of his players. And it seems like a really tough task, but I think that that's his strong point. And that's kind of what I pulled out of, of what I've learned about Ralph Kruger. And, and I do think, again, I just look back at, at Switzerland, man, and they've gone from producing no NHLers and being an afterthought on the international stage. And now in international tournaments, they're there in the mix, they're competing in medal rounds and they're, they're developing players that can play in the NHL. And that's, that says a lot, I think, about him because he was a big part of that. I mean, he came up once he was done coaching. You know, he was in Austria for a little bit. And then really the late 90s, right up through the 2000s, it was Switzerland for him. Uh, world Championships, Olympics, um, you know, and, and I just think there's a blueprint there for success for with what he's done. And I think it, it does correlate on a young team. Sabres, I think, were the third youngest team in the NHL last year. And you got some guys, you got a really young leadership core. Um, you still have guys that are kind of figuring out how to be a leader in a group of 20. And I, I think it's uh, important to have a guy like him there that can help guide that individual development and the whole team goal philosophy that he's trying to build here. So reportedly, Jason Bottrell interviewed at least seven different candidates for the job. In fact, one of them, and I heard this on the Tim Graham show last week, that former longtime Sabres coach Lindy Ruff was one of those people that Bottrell interviewed. Ultimately. Of course, it goes to Ralph Kruger. Were you a little bit surprised after hearing some of the names that were out there as potential candidates? Are you a little bit surprised that it was Ralph Kruger that ended up getting the nod? I'm not surprised in knowing how, you know, I think Jason Botterill wanted someone that's been around a while, but it was really, and, and I'm going to throw a word out there that everyone hates, and but, you know, too bad, okay? It's all about instilling a culture. Mm-hmm. And Ralph Kruger is a culture guy and culture means a lot of different things. It has a negative connotation as this buzzword right now. And I get it to a certain extent. Okay. But every business, every organization has a culture. Your culture gets tested when things go bad. Your culture doesn't get tested when things are going really well. Okay. Right. And th- things have gone really bad here and they might not have a great culture here. So if you have a guy that's coming in and he wants to really get to know the players and he wants to understand and listen to them. And I think that's really important, by the way, too, with the younger generation. You know, I'll bust balls on millennials all day long. I'm I'm a 43 year old guy, you know, so it's like I can talk about my little brother, you know. Sure. But you know what, though? But there's something to be said about realizing the strengths of that that generation, the millennials and the ones underneath them. They're very smart. They're intuitive and they just want to be heard. And I've said that a couple of times, both on Twitter, maybe even on Tim Graham's show. And I think that Jason Botterill was looking for that type of candidate that can really communicate with that younger set. And I think that he did it here. I mean, what's the difference between uh, Ralph Kruger and Lindy Ruff? Ralph Kruger can communicate with young folks and he has this structure and he has a great vision for an organization, not just this on ice product. And I think there's a lot of strengths there from a business sense 
that kind of works into what Jason Botterill was looking for in terms of building a structured organization and also getting the most out of that on ice product. Why do you think that Phil Housley didn't work out as Sabres head coach? And let me preface this by saying, I admit that I don't have the greatest hockey knowledge in the world. I am a hockey guy to a certain extent, but I like other sports much better and I pay more attention, I should say, to other sports. But from what I saw, and I did watch enough Sabres hockey, Bill Housley seemed to me like a guy who was kind of in over his head as head coach. I know he's done some coaching before, but that was his first head coaching job with the Buffalo Sabres, NHL head coaching job anyway. I just, I don't know, I felt like he was in over his head, but that's why I have you on this podcast, right? Because I want to turn to you, ask you, somebody who has a far deeper hockey knowledge than I do. In your opinion, what is it that comes when it comes to Phil Housley that things just didn't work out? Why do you think? Well, I mean, he did need better players. You know, I'm not going to sit here and make excuses for Phil Housley. He did need better players, though. Okay. And that, that you know, that 10-game winning streak, that was a mirage. I mean, they weren't scoring enough goals in the way that they were winning the games. You knew that that was just going to, their luck was going to run out. I think Housley ran out of answers, frankly. And I don't think that the plan was to can him. I think that they were really going to try to grind it out. But when he started running out of answers and really getting a little bit more frustrated um, and not having answers and not having an ability to switch things up and do different things and maybe you know, uh, maybe use Rasmus Ristolainen as an example in a more favorable way where he's less exposed. You know, some of the line combinations, uh, not trying different things. He ran out of answers. As soon as the coach runs out of answers, you run out of time to do your job. And I think that his message got lost on the guys after just trying to, to communicate. And listen, Housley, when he came in, he was a guy who coached in high school at Stillwater High School. And he, you know, he, he, re- he worked with young players on the world junior team and won a gold medal. And he did all these things where it looked like he was that guy that could do the, all these things that we're saying Ralph Kruger can do. It just didn't happen. And I think his message got lost. And, and from there, as soon as you don't have answers and, and, and look, that, that's one thing. Okay. Schematically, you know, he was doing man to man defensive zone stuff. And, um, you know, guys were chasing the puck constantly because they were trying to play man in the D zone. And I don't, I don't know why he was doing things like that schematically. I mean, so you can look at both, you know, the coaching philosophy and the communication piece. You can look at some of the schematics and it just wasn't making sense to keep him around anymore. And it's too bad because I think that a lot of people wanted Housley to work. It just didn't work with this group at this time. Now you've been watching hockey closely for a lot of years. So I'm going to assume that there's not a whole lot that goes on in the sport that really truly surprises you. But when it comes to this year's Buffalo Sabres team, and again, like I said at the beginning, we talked just before the season had started. When it comes to this last season, given how, and I know it was a product of luck to some extent, and it's not like they were dominated on the ice, but at one point, let's face it, in fact, in the end of November, they were dominating in the standings. Man, they were in first place in the NHL at one point. To see them go from so high to just plummet, it's one thing to fall off. I think everyone knew the Sabres were going to fall off. But to plummet in the fashion that they did so dramatically, so harshly, to have the last couple of months of the season just be essentially a huge tire fire, especially over the last, like I said, three or four months or so, how surprising was that to you to watch everything unfold? It's been bizarre to see the Sabres at the top of the heap early on in the season and then completely go to shit and then see a team like St. Louis, who's the dregs of the NHL. And here they are one game away from going to the Stanley cup final. It's just hockey, man. You know, and I think the difference really between, uh, and that's the beauty of sports, Pat. I mean, let's face it. That's, that's the beauty of sports, man. And then, you know, an 82 game season, but I think with um, the Sabres, really, when you look at the streak, they were overachieving largely because of their goaltending and the goaltending just, uh, you know, they couldn't get the saves to win those games late in the year. And it was incredible. They couldn't put together two wins in a row. You know, I mean, just like fundamental building blocks when you're going game to game, they just couldn't pull it off. And I think it's a team that lost their confidence. They lost their swagger. They weren't having fun. And when you're not having fun, you know, everyone's gripping their stick. It was just really troubling to watch. As a Buffalo sports fan, we're conditioned to almost expect it, but that was just like next level fallout. And um, 
did you know, it, that's where did I it think feel to you at times. I'm not saying, listen, they never tanked, obviously. Okay. This is a total different team, not the same era where they were losing games on purpose. I'm not even suggesting that because I know that wasn't the case, but did mm-hmm. it just seem like there were days or nights where they had absolutely nothing. They just I like played dead out there. I, I watch again. I don't watch it with the same intensity that you do, but I watch a lot of the games and there were just nights where it looked like they weren't even trying to get it going. It was just like, they're just getting punched in the face and they didn't want to fight back on certain nights. That's what it looked like to me. Well, I think there's something to that, Pat. Okay. Because one of the things that this coach has is a challenge in front of him. Kruger does is to get all those guys to play for one another. That's the coach's job. Okay. Get the guys to come together under one cause, you know, and they weren't doing that, that Sabres team in 2018, 19, they weren't coming together and they weren't playing for each other. And it was, you know, it was tough to watch. I'm so sick and tired of watching bad hockey just as a hockey watcher. Right. Okay. You know, I, I'm forced to watch the Sabres because of the market I live in, you know, I mean, but it's like, I'm so tired of watching bad hockey. And that was really, really bad hockey down the stretch. And I don't think that I'm really exaggerating or being overly dramatic about it. Passing was awful. They couldn't get out of their zone. They weren't shooting pucks when they should have shot pucks, you know, I mean, basic stuff. Um, so I think that, you know, and that's where it goes back. And I, again, you know, people are going to hammer on the fact that you're saying the word culture, but part of that culture is getting guys to buy in and you get back to the bench and you look to your left, you look to your right and you're like, how am I going to make this guy better on the next shift? You know, how are we going to play for one another? I mean, that's the challenge. That's the challenge. And, um, they just didn't do it last year. And that goes back to the coach. Yeah. All right. So let's talk about what's going to be going on with the Buffalo Sabres this coming off season over the summer. We talked about a lack of talent in this organization. That's with Jeff Skinner who scored 40 goals last year. Of course, he's going to be a free agent unless they get a deal done before July 1st. What do you think the parameters are right now that it's going to take to get a deal done with Jeff Skinner? Do you think that it's going to get done before free agency starts? And depending on what that number is that comes in, the number that he's seeking, but the Sabres ultimately may pay. Do you think it's a deal that should get done? I think they're in that negotiating phase right now. And I think they will get one done because I think the Sabres ultimately will get a little bit desperate. And if you want to be competitive next year and you want to get this coach who has uh, a little bit of history as a consultant with Carolina, by the way, when Skinner played there, Kruger does. If, if you want to get the coach moving in the right direction, you know, what do we say about Housley? He didn't have the right, he didn't have the good enough roster. Well, you better get your new coach, the best roster you could possibly put out there. And here's a guy who, who realistically likes being in Buffalo. Um, so if they're negotiating term right now, and it sounds like that's the deal, I can see the Sabres turning up the dial and giving him that term that he wants. You're going to see some around, you know, eight for eight, something like that, maybe a little bit more. I think that the, the Skinner in the first half of the season was worth the money that you're going to pay him, you know, I'm mm-hmm. not sure the Skinner that you saw down the stretch is worth that money, but you just, I think you have to do it. I think you're going to get backed into a corner and all you're doing is digging yourself a deeper hole. If you don't do it, Pat, do you think that the major dip in Jeff Skinner's production over the second half of the season was mainly out of pure frustration over the way the team was playing as a whole? And the fact that it was pretty much him, Jack and Sam scoring and almost, <laughs> almost nobody else scoring. It was pretty much, three or four guys scoring all the goals. You think maybe that weighed a little bit too heavily on him. And like I said, he was just really, really frustrated. How much do you think that that played a role in his dip over the second half? I think it's a little bit of everything. I mean, just like we said, the team was overachieving early on. Well, so was he. I mean, at one point, I think when he was up at 18 or 19 goals, he had a 23% shooting percentage. Right. You just, you just don't sustain that, you know, for the course of a year and, you know, you, you regress and that's expected, but, you know, he, he more than regressed. And I just think that again, I think it was just a perfect storm. He was a little snake bitten team was as well, just as a whole. And the bounces weren't going his way. I mean, he's a, he's a very gifted goal scorer. He gets a lot of shots on that historically. I mean, you look at his full body of work, there's no reason to think that he's not going to be worth the money that the Sabres are going to pay him. So just pay him the damn money. Yeah. Do you feel like when it comes into Buffalo Sabres right now, that it's absolutely critical that they get a contract done before July 1st, when he can hit free agency, because I kind of feel like now's the time to get it done. And if he gets to the open market, somebody's probably going to blow him away with an offer and he could very well be gone. So 
my mindset for the Sabres right now is get this done right now while no one else can negotiate with you except for the Buffalo Sabres. Well, I think it's going to cost them. I mean, if he goes to free agency, it's going to cost them a little bit more money because someone's going to pay him the money that we're talking about. So what I'm looking at is I think that, you know, conversations about term and everything else, everything's going to escalate right around the draft. And if a deal gets done, I think it's going to be that week of the draft. That's kind of what I'm forecasting. And again, I know nothing bad, okay, about what the numbers are and what his agent's asking for and everything else. But, you know, he's with Newport Sports. Newport Sports has very good agents. They know the the economics. They know the market very well. And they're going to get them, uh, they're going to get a market value. And it's, and Botterill, I can see him, you know, just playing a little bit of hardball right now because he's got a little time. But at some point, he's going to cave and he's going to make sure that Skinner doesn't get to unrestricted. What about a plan B? What if the Sabres shoot their shot with Jeff Skinner and they can't land him? Or what if Skinner ultimately comes to them with the number that, for whatever reason, the Sabres just decide that they're not willing to pay and he does end up leaving via free agency? Whether it's a trade or another free agent, do you think that the Sabres will have a solid plan B in place or are they really counting on bringing him back? And if Skinner leaves, things are really going to be up in the air. Well, I don't think everything would be up in the air. I mean, I think Zucker's a good player from Minnesota, and you can make a play for a guy like that. You can get on the phone, and you can call Tampa Bay, who you know is going to be in a little bit of a squeeze on their cap, and maybe there's a deal to be made there. But the problem is that that deal is probably going to have to include Rasmus Ristolainen, and if you're going to look to get any kind of quality forward back to replace Skinner's scoring in his production. And right now, with Pilot on the shelf and with Bogosian on the shelf for a little bit, you might not be able to move Ristolainen in right away. Or maybe there's not, not that pressing need that, you know, a lot of pundits think they just need to get rid of them. And, I, and listen, I'm, I'm 50-50 on keeping them or, or sending them packing. But, you know, what, what I'm looking at with Skinner is that you have a commodity here who has some chemistry with your centerman. You know, he can play with Eichel. And he had a great stretch, one of the most torrid scoring stretches that we've seen in the Sabres in the past decade, frankly, that first half of the year. You have a commodity. You have a known commodity. Why would you tinker with that chemistry that you know is there and you just need to find it again? You know, and why would you go out and maybe, you know, cut bait, just let him go. And then you're going to have to bring in another element and hope that things work. Hope that he messes with the guys in the room. You know, I mean. That's that's part of the reason why I think Botterill's is going to kind of say, you know what, screw it. I'm going to give you what you want. Sorry to make you wait this long. We want you to be a Buffalo Saber. Here you go. Sign. Yeah. So when we talked right before the season started, we spent some time talking about two Sabres prospects specifically, Victor Olofsson and Alexander Nylander. Olofsson, at least to me, looks like a keeper for sure. I was really impressed by the way he looked when he came up to Buffalo late in the season. Nylander, eh, not so sure about when you look at these two guys, what do you see? And specifically when Nylander, do you, what do you see in his future with Buffalo? If he has a future with Buffalo? I think that he's a guy who plays better when he is around better players. (laughs) I mean, he wasn't bad. I don't think he was bad when he was up here in terms of here's a guy he's playing. What he hasn't played maybe 15 total NHL games. I'd have to go back and look, but you know, I think there's more to the story. I just think that if you can include him in a package, you do. You can move him without, you know, you're not harming your long-term prospects of your roster and, you know, your, your viability to produce, produce offense. Um, if there's a team out there that believes in him and thinks that they can turn him into something, you, you move him. But is there harm in keeping him here another year and just keep developing him and getting the confidence that he needs to and keeping him healthy? If you can keep the damn kid healthy, He'll probably play in the NHL. Um, you know, he does struggle with a lot of the, the physical parts of hockey, but he's not completely uh, just a lost cause either. And I think that, you know, sometimes when you read reports on social media and, and things like that, um, I think that some of the opinions get a little out of hand with Nylander because let's just look at what he did when he was up in Buffalo, whether it's the preseason or at the end of the year. He didn't play all that poorly, Okay. Mm-hmm. In preseason, he was one of the last cuts for, and for very good reason. That was on merit. And he's a young player. And, and I think that folks don't realize how hard it is to play in the AHL. I never played in the AHL, okay, as an 18-year-old kid. But I've seen a lot of people try, even as 20 and 21-year-olds. And it's just a tough league to to really get in the rhythm. You're playing against guys that are big, strong, fast. They'll put you on your ass. They, they, you know what I mean? And he's just still learning. And he's just got a longer curve. So I'm not, you know, I'm still not there where I'm dumping him yet. 
Um, Olafson, though, just to move on to him, I mean, he is a top six forward. I think that going into the season, we talked about, okay, here's a guy, he's got a, a blistering shot, but he can also do a little bit more. He, he can skate. He has a burst. He can make little plays, you know, chipping the puck out of the zone and, you know, making safe plays defensively. He's not going to win a Selkie, you know what I mean? But he can make responsible plays and you can rely on him. It's all about being reliable when you're young and you get your chance. And he proved himself as a reliable player with him. Player development staff did their job because that was the whole kind of theme with Olsen going into the season is that here's a guy he's enjoyed a lot of space in Sweden. He's put up big numbers. What's he going to do over here now when he doesn't have that time in that space? And he acquitted himself nicely, had a great season in Rochester. He got his confidence going. He's the first guy that'll tell you that he wasn't ready in October or November, but man, February, March, he was ready and he showed it. So next year out of camp, he's a guy that he should be fighting for a spot, find a spot for him in the top six. You have a weapon that you can use on your second line, you know, maybe third line, maybe first line, who knows, but you can definitely have a guy you can put on that, that right dot on the power play. And he's going to just launch shots all day long and score a ton of goals. Yeah. I'm excited about watching him play going forward. Speaking of Rasmus Dahlin, what was he to you as a rookie? Was he everything that you realistically hoped he would be this year in his first year in the NHL? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, he exceeded expectations as far as I'm concerned, because it's really hard to come in as a defenseman and play those minutes. And, and it, you know, I, I listen, you have to understand that a kid is going to make mistakes. Right. And he and he made mistakes. I mean, he gets a little too cute sometimes at the top of the zone where, you know, you want, might want to make an extra move on a guy at the blue line. No, just send the puck back to the corner, Rasmus. You don't need to, you know, do this shit where you try to put the puck through the guy's skates. You know what I mean? And, right. Um, you know. He, but that's what we always say as humans, we learn by making mistakes. He made mistakes and I'm pretty sure that he learned from them because those mistakes were fewer and far between as the season progressed. Um, there is no perfect player. Eric Carlson still makes mistakes. Eric Carlson's regarded for a long time as one of the best defensemen in the world, you know? So there is no perfect player. I think Darlene was better than uh, consistently better than we had hoped for this year. I mean, you want to talk about the sky limit. I mean, golly, this kid is going to be really good for 15, 20 years. One more young guy I want to hit on. Casey Middlestat had a, well, statistically speaking for sure, relatively rough first full NHL season. Only ended up having 12 goals, 25 points in like 77 games. I think that he had a lot of things going against him. Maybe he was forced into a role that he wasn't quite ready for, especially after the Sabres ended up trading away Ryan O'Reilly and then Berglund ended up leaving the team after the season started. I think that kind of maybe forced him into a role that probably wasn't best suited for him, at least at this early stage of his career. Maybe he grows into a top six player down the road or whatever have you, but it just seems to me at times that he looked a little bit lost and out of place at the NHL level which to some extent is perfectly understandable. And again, I think he was thrust into a bigger role than he may have been ready for. I guess my long-winded question right here is, what did you think of Casey Middlestat this past season? And I'm pretty sure I know what the answer is, but I'm going to ask you anyway, that you're excited about him going into the future here. Pat, first of all, don't worry about asking long-winded questions. I don't know if you noticed, but I kind of give long-winded answers. Oh, dude, I'll, I'll tell you what, um, I love it. It takes but, less but prep work a, to have you. <laughs> Go ahead. <laughs> no, with uh, with Middlestad, I so here. This is where you raise your hand and you say that you got it wrong. People don't do this enough, right? I got it completely wrong with Casey Middlestad this year. I thought he was going to come in and he would have been like Nico Heischer, where he could have played uh, second second line, even strength minutes, top power play and not skip a beat. And I think you saw a kid that just two years ago was playing high school hockey and he's like, holy shit, you know, this game is uh, fast. It's a grind. And, um, you know, I think to your point, I agree with you. Maybe he was thrown in um, to too much responsibility too soon, but long-term zero worries, zero worries about Casey Millsdale long-term. And maybe that's part of the hard headed Chris Baker saying, you know, maybe you were wrong last year, but you'll be right again soon. Yeah. <laughs> okay. But no, I do believe that. I mean, his skill, he's a, he's a competitor, man. I mean, the kid's fiery. You know, when you ask about Nylander, some of his shortcomings are maybe being a little shy, physical battles. 
Middlestat doesn't have that shy bone in his body. He gets in there, he grinds, he puts his head down, he hits, he gets pissed off, he lets people know he's engaged in the game. And, you know, and that's the, the compare and contrast, too. I keep going back to Nylander. You know, Nylander was told since he was 12 years old how great he was. You know what I mean? Well, guess what? So was Casey Middlestad, you know? But Nylander saw his father play in the NHL and live this cushy life. Middlestad's parents, you know, they both work in a family business. You know, they work. Like, they're blue collar. You yeah, know what I mean? Yeah, and, like, yeah, he doesn't yeah. take anything for granted. You're seeing a difference in um, just upbringing and you know, they both have a passion for the game, but Middlestat, I, I seriously don't worry about the kid because all you need to do is just watch how he goes into corners, watch how he battles, um, and the emotion, the fire that he plays with. You bundle that with just this impeccable, just his skill level and his hands and his creativity. He's going to be fine. Um, guys got to learn, man. You know, and he learned he learned on the fly. And I know fans don't always want the players to do on the job training while they're wearing blue and gold jerseys in the NHL. That's the situation they were in this year. And I don't think that, you know, long term, it's going to be a loss. And I don't think anyone should regret having them up here this year, even though the team did kind of bottom out. Last question, then I'm going to let you go with that seventh pick that they got coming up in the draft in June. Give me a guy or two that you think the Sabres are or that they should be taking a long look at with that seventh pick. Uh, I knew you're going to do this. Um, so, <laughs> you know, we, well, so, you know, I, so let me just preface this by saying, uh, I am doing a draft preview this year. Mm -hmm. I am going to do a prospect ranking. Well, more to come later on where those will be. Right. Um, but I'll say this, um, there's a, a, a couple directions that they're going to go. I will say this. I think that you're looking at a player from the United States National Team Development Program. I just think it fits the profile of how the Sabres like to develop players under Jason Botterill. I think that there's kids that you can stash in college for a couple of years. They're going to work on their bodies during the weeks. They're going to play two games a week. I have two favorites, and then I think there's one that you know the, the fans really like. Okay, But I think Cole Caulfield is uh, going to get a lot of play for the Sabres at seven leading up to the draft. And I think that how this kid interviews at the combine and really, you know, shows himself uh, that he can play. It's, it, it's not about how big you are. It's how big you play. Cole Caulfield is five, six. Okay. Yeah. But he's, oh. but he's, but it doesn't matter. I think with him. And I think that he's right there in the mix and he's going to go to Wisconsin. He's going to be a prolific goal scorer there probably one to two years and he'll be bouncing out and he'll be a pro. Um, I think that Trevor Zegras is legitimately right in, uh, right in the mix for the Sabres. I think that he's a natural centerman. He can play wing. He will play wing as an NHL player. I think he's, um, he's got a little bit of, um, you know, he's more flashy, um, you know, slick than he is maybe, you know, straight line player. And he's going to go to Boston university. I think that he's going to be another one who's just an excellent, um, you know, he, he's got a two-way player uh, model to him, but I think that, he, you know, he's a guy who's going to be right there in the mix. That'll be a great pro, and he's, you know, you're not you're not really taking a chance there. You know, you're going to get a good player there. The player I really like, I think you might be overshooting a little bit at seven, but I like Matthew Boldy, and I've been on this kid for two years. I think if you look where this kid's been as a 16-year-old and then as a 17-year-old, and then this past year, he was a kid. He was small, scrawny. He had a growth spurt. He's starting to play into his bigger body. He has a full 200-foot game. This guy is really responsible. My favorite player that you've talked about in the top 10 is Matthew Boldy. Um, if the Sabres take him at seven, I wouldn't be surprised. And sometimes you just have to get good, hard-nosed hockey players that can pass the puck, score the puck, and, and play defense, and he does that. He Does he does he have that same offensive ceiling, that upside, as maybe a Zgras or a, a Cole Caulfield? First of all, no one has the upside that the goal-scoring upside that Cole Caulfield has, Okay. I mean, the guy just set records. He scored, gosh, I mean, I can't, I don't even have the stats in front of me, but it was just ridiculous how many goals this kid scored the past two years. Um, Boldy doesn't have that same upside as those two, but he has just a lot of hockey intelligence to him. Super smart player, and I wouldn't be surprised if they take him. All three of those guys came out of the National Team Development Program. I think it's going to be one of those three. All right. Well, I feel like we all just got a free NHL draft prospect education right there. That's cool. Yo, by the way, man, we talked before off air before we started doing this podcast. You started watching Game of Thrones, but you've only started watching it in this last season here, season eight. How in the hell were you able to pull that off and still have any type of idea what the hell's going on? 
So, I don't, you know, in between people just bitching nonstop about everything. Oh, on Twitter, yeah. Okay. Because that's all we do is bitch on Twitter. Right. And, um, but, but I do, but I follow Joe, uh, Buffalo Wins. Yeah, my God. And that's, yep. it's, it seems like that's all he talks about. So I feel like I knew everything that happened in Game of Thrones by uh, following Joe and, you know, just kind of taking notes, you know. But, um, <laughs> you know, no, the funny thing is that uh, I remember when the first episode came out. And I'm not into like, I'm not a fantasy guy. I'm not into that stuff. You know what I mean? I've never watched Lord of the Rings. Or right. Me stuff, neither. You know? But um, I remember watching the first episode on HBO and I was like, yeah, this probably isn't for me. And then I didn't watch another episode until this season. But like I said, I just, I feel like I knew all the storylines <laughs> just from being on social media. And listen, I know people are barking and like, there's this petition. Oh my God. These people are nuts. Yeah. The petition. Oh, what a God. bunch of babies. Oh yeah. my God. Jeez. But um, it wasn't that bad. I mean, uh, What's his name? Bran? Bran? Yeah, Bran? Bran? Bran the Broken? Yeah. Yep. <laughs> um, am I spoiling this for anyone? No, well, you know what? People uh, get a 48-hour rule, and I always say it at the top of the show. By the way, you only watched one season of this show, which I actually only watched two seasons of the show on a weekly basis on HBO. I, like you, my wife was a complete Game of Thrones addict from the first episode. I was not at all. Typically speaking, it's not my kind of show. I'm not into fantasy and all that other stuff, dragons. That's just typically, that's not for me, man. But anyway, I would watch an episode or two, not even a full one. I'd half pay attention here or there. I'm like, uh, whatever. Well, my wife was watching the whole thing. And that was the way it was for six seasons. Now, the, the, before the seventh season started, I binge watched all the first six episodes. And I completely and utterly got hooked. And I understand why so many people are so passionate about the show now. So I watched season seven week by week, and then I had to wait a year and a half like everyone else for this latest season. So I kind of had to endure all that waiting and suffering. And I think maybe to some extent, that's why some people have been harsh on this show. Maybe not, but I feel like that's one of the reasons anyway. Now you're a different case because you didn't start watching this until this last season. So let me ask you this. Based on that, the fact that you've only watched this one season, what did you think of season eight of Game of Thrones? The um just like all the graphic work and all the, you know, the science into ma pulling that off. Yeah. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Like super amazing. You know what I mean? Like, uh, I think like something like that will hold up for many years just because of all of the production work on that show. And there was only a couple times where I, I remember like that gray worm dude, he like, he was like, there was someone running and all these horses were chasing him. And then gray worm, like, like uh, sticks a spear through the guy. That's the only thing that looked like kind of like kind of cheesy in terms of production. Right. Everything else was super well done. The dragons were sick. I mean, listen, just because I say that I'm not into fantasy and so I'm not here to cut anybody down watching. I know a lot of people like to do that. Um, like, I don't care what you like, you know what I mean? Yeah. And you shouldn't care what I like. But um, no, I think that th that's what really stood out to me was just like all of that detail, man. And um, and the chick was hot, too. The yeah. one that uh, Jon Snow killed in the end. Daenerys. Yeah, yeah. I I'll tell you, man. It's, it, it's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was. She definitely was. Dude, I said yeah. if he would have just banged his uh, banged his hand, none of this would have happened at the end. But anyway, it's like it's very easy to forget that this is a TV show. And for the graphics and the cinematography that you see, it's like you got to usually go to see a movie like the Avengers or something like that, a Marvel movie, to get that type of action and that type of imagery. That's what has been from right from the outgoing, the, the best part about Game of Thrones. It's, it's hard to believe that it was just a TV show sometimes. You can see why people were into it, not just because of all the multiple plots and everything going on and just like the drama that comes with all that. Just the, the production itself, I mean, it was really, it gets you hooked. I could see myself going back at some point and, and watching the whole thing start to finish and probably being into it, to be honest with you. Yeah. All right, everyone. Chris Baker, follow him on Twitter at Sabres Prospects, even though he doesn't really like Twitter that much anymore. But <laughs> I can well, always... I'm not saying that. Oh, by the way, can I say one thing? Go ahead. Um, you, so Paul Hamilton. Yeah. I'm really glad that uh he's he took the time to chat with you um i've known paul for a long time and <clears throat> he's a great guy okay and i think that i i don't know how you know your your podcast has been received and by the way i don't hate twitter i just hate you know the same old crap all the time right um but um i'm, I'm just happy that uh paul took time to, to chat with you and people got to know the person a little bit more paul's an awesome dude 
um, I've had, uh, you know, just, you know, part of being in hockey that the friendships that you've made are, are so incredible. Paul is one of the best guys that I've met in hockey. And I, and I think he came through really well in your podcast. So I hope it was well received by others and some folks got to know him a little bit better. Well, let me tell you this about Paul and then we'll get out of here. I was skeptical about having him on as a guest for this podcast for a couple of reasons. Number one, I had never had a conversation with Paul in my life. So I didn't really know anything about him other than the work that he does. I've always respected him as a journalist and he's a hardcore journalist, which kind of made me a little bit concerned, like a no nonsense type of guy from what I've seen of him again, without really knowing him. So I was kind of concerned about that. And then also the perception that he has, at least on social media and Twitter, which I've come to learn as I've gotten to know him now through this interview, that that's really a bunch of bullshit. Now he does block a lot of people on Twitter. That's not, that's not even defensible for him. That is true. He does do that. But the reason is because people like myself or you or others like Tim Graham's notorious for it. You know, we sit there inspire and go back and forth with people, which, you know, they do that and they get a rise out of you and you go back at them, stuff like that. Paul don't mess around like that, man. Like I said, no nonsense. He's just going to block your ass. If you swear at him, he's going to block you. If you're really ignorant to him, he's going to block you. And it's just the way it is. So I was concerned about the feedback that when I said, I'm going to have Paul Hamilton as a guest on my podcast, I was concerned that a lot of fans were going to have really shitty comments to say about that. But as the way it turned out, and this is all 100% credit to Paul, I had no idea the type of interview it was going to be. And to his credit, again, he, he told me I could ask him about anything. So I did ask him about his wife and some of the problems that he's had to overcome, you know, literally almost dying from being so overweight. And he just told such great stories. So when you combine that, and emotional too, by the way, at times, and you combine that with just his amazing hockey knowledge, which is second to none when it comes to the Buffalo Sabres and pretty much just hockey in general at this point, it ended up being a really good interview. And again, it's not, I didn't really do much. I just asked some questions. Paul's the one who was telling all the stories. It ended up being very well received and actually not just well received to this day. It's actually, I've done, I think 120, 121 episodes of this podcast. Now, something like that had some good guests on including yourself. He is literally, that was the most downloaded podcast that I've ever had on this podcast to this point. Well, now I'm pissed because you told me that after whatever, when we did our first one. So now, uh, <laughs> well, yeah, it was at the time. Now I'm a little pissed off, but no, uh, Paul though. Yeah. And what I found and just last thing on Paul is that both personally between he and I, but also what I've seen from him and others. And this is probably how he, he viewed the project of sitting down with you is that he has a lot of respect for people that put in honest work. Yeah. And uh, I think that's probably how we approach it with you. And, and that's kudos to you too. I mean, you've been doing a great job with this. It's fun to, to see your success. And, and I just wanted to mention that about Paul, because I think he's a, he's a really good guy. Maybe he doesn't get a good rap all the time from people. Hi, my name is Matt Cundell, and this portion of the Moranolytics podcast is powered by my company, mattcundellvoice.com. If you need a voice for your company videos, narration, e-learning, maybe it's your radio or TV ad, or even your phone system, consider using my voice to tell your story. I'm not only a sponsor of this podcast, I'm also a regular listener, wrestling fan, and longtime supporter of the Buffalo Bills. For more, check out mattcundlevoice.com or click on the link in the show notes. Now let's turn our attention to the movies, more specifically a movie review. Like I told you at the top of the podcast, I have a review of John Wick Chapter 3. This is a non-spoiler version. It comes courtesy of Sean Chandler. From the Sean Chandler Talks About YouTube channel. Sean's been kind enough to let me play some audio versions of his movie reviews from time to time. You really should go check out his channel and subscribe to it. He's got, by the way, like 111,000 subscribers. That number's growing daily for good reason. He has content out almost daily. TV shows, movies, MCU stuff, power rankings, you name it. He's got it. He does really good work. Again, that's the Sean Chandler talks about YouTube page. And again, this is non-spoiler. I will say this though. I cut out, he actually has a spoiler version inside this video that you can find out his channel. I cut it out, but if you want to go to his channel after you listen to this, at the very end, he does have some spoilers talk because he said that it helped 
him determine what his grade and his score was for the movie. But you're not going to get that here. This is the non-spoiler version. Again, Sean Chandler's movie review of John Wick, Chapter 3. The third outing of John Wick has exploded onto the big screen, so let's talk about it. John Wick Chapter 3 Parabellum picks up right where the previous film left off with John Wick on the run for his life. With that in mind, you do need to have seen the previous two John Wick films to understand this film, and I would recommend re-watching them before you go into this film. With that said, let's get started talking about the good. And it almost goes without saying, but the best thing about this film is the action. The franchise has grown a reputation for having excellent choreography that shot very well, and that is all true with this film as well. This time it's a little bit more visceral. There's more gore in the mix. There's more moments where you go, oh, ooh, oh, oh, oh. my whole audience did that multiple times throughout the entire film. And they also take all of the cool choreography and take everything to that next level. The action is bigger, but just as clever. There's all sorts of little elements where they tried to find what would be fun to do in this specific environment that would be unique and interesting. And as you go throughout the stunt work, there's multiple situations in the film where you're going, I don't know how they shot that. I don't know how a human could have done that thing. I know that I'm watching a special effect, but I've never seen this technique before. So it seems a lot like they invented new ways to do action fight choreography for this film. I mean, as you go through the film, horses get involved in fights, dogs get very involved in one of the fight scenes. There's a whole sequence that's a long take motorcycle chase fight sequence that I've never seen anything shot the way that this was shot before. Everything is done with wide shots. You always know what John Wick or the people around him are doing this is top-notch. This is the best action that Hollywood is putting out. From there, you gotta talk about the cast. Of course, Keanu Reeves is excellent in this role. It's like a character designed to amplify all the best things about him as a physical performer, as well as as an actor, and it minimizes some of his weaknesses, and this film does all of that even more so than the previous films. Add to the mix, you get Halle Berry, and she's actually a really great addition. She is just as involved in the action as Keanu Reeves is. You're seeing her throwing punches, kicks, shooting guys in the face. She very clearly went to the Keanu Reeves school of stunt work or wherever he learned to do this stuff. She is all in as well. And there's a very cool sequence in the middle of the film with her. Add to the mix, you got Mark Dacascos as one of our villains. That was a great addition. I'm a big fan of his 90s martial arts action films. I grew up watching several of them, like Only the Strong, Drive. And so I was very pleasantly surprised to see him in this film. And he, he has a nice little character in there. Of course, he does the action, but his character kind of has this quirky way that he does humor inside of it that's a nice little touch. And of course, it's always great to see Ian McShane inside of these films. This movie, he's more kind of tied into the plot line of what's going on as well as given a bit more of an arc for his character. You get more nuance depth as he's more plugged into everything that's happening. Another nice touch for this film is it's got a little bit more humor. These films have always had a little bit of a wink at the audience, a touch of dry humor that kind of cuts the tension in some of the moments. This movie cranks that up a little bit. I already mentioned kind of Mark Dacascos being one of those characters that goes between being deadly, very serious, and then having these little lines that are really funny. But there's a lot of stuff like that inside of the film. And finally, with the John Wick films, they've always done a great job of finding environments that are very cool. So everything looks gorgeous. Where they're having these cool action sequences, looks equally cool, and all of that is true here. We're going to new places, different places, globe trotting, all of that stuff that you enjoyed about the previous films, there's more of it here. With that said, let's move on to the mixed aspects of the film. First thing that comes to mind is the world building. One of the best things about the first two films is they crafted this big, gigantic world with all these rules and the continental that you really enjoyed learning more about. This film, I think we got to the point in time where I think they're stepping over the line a little bit 
and the rules, the nature of all of it is starting to get more frustrating and convoluted. And so I think they went a little bit too far with this film. Second mixed aspect is the pacing. This movie starts off with this extreme sense of urgency. It picks up almost right after the previous film ended. John Wick is on the run. There's a literal kind of ticking clock going on and you just feel this forward momentum, a sense of tension and danger. And it keeps on going for about the first 25 minutes of the film and then kind of the more distinct plot of this film kicks in and it's like they just took their foot off the gas things kind of slow down for about 25 minutes and then it picks back up there's the urgency there's the danger again and that's kind of the way the movie does its pacing it's either pedal to the metal or we're way off the gas and things slow down a good bit and so it seemed like they could have evened that out a little bit and one more thing on the mixed category because they're setting up so many awesome very cool action sequences and shots the movie frequently uses that action movie trope where guys attack our lead protagonist one at a time instead of just swarming the guy all at once. And that was something I noticed from time to time. From there, let's move on to the bad. The big thing that comes to mind is for a movie that has a very simple, straightforward plotline, there's a whole lot going on and a bunch of ideas that are teased but not really explored. Like you could describe this movie in just about three sentences pretty accurately, but the way they execute those three sentences, it's like they keep stacking layers on top of layers and backstories and little details for every single small little plot point. So for example, the first act of the film, and this isn't really a spoiler, is about John Wick trying to get away from the dense section of New York City. That's a very straightforward, simple idea of what he's trying to do. But the way it does this is that it stacks on layers of past relationships, past friendships, his origin story, all these ideas that aren't really explored. They're just kind of put there to make a very simple plot line have more depth to it. And every single plot point in this movie feels like that. Simple plot point with a whole bunch of layers. Now, it's a good thing in a movie for it to feel like a lived-in world and like our character has past relationships with people. And that was one of the really good things about the first two films. But here it feels a little bit like they're introducing too many ideas that they don't have enough time to fully explore. They're just kind of putting them out there. And at times it feels like they're putting complexity on these simple plot points just so that they can add these cool shots inside of the movie. Like, hey, we want to go to this location. I've got this idea for a shot of John Wick in a desert. So let's put this on top of this on top of this. When for the actual sake of the story, you could have done it a much easier fashion. And finally, I didn't think the story came to a satisfying conclusion. There's ideas and plot lines introduced inside of the film that didn't come to a full resolution. I'll elaborate on this after I give my final score because I need to kind of go into spoilers to say exactly what I mean with that. In summary, this is a movie that absolutely delivers on the most important thing it must deliver on, which is the action. And it's probably going to have the best action of the entire year. But on the story level, this was probably the weakest of the stories inside of this franchise. I'm gonna go with a B plus and an 8.5 on the entertainment scale. And this is a must see for action fans. Thank you so much for watching and keep talking movies too much. All right, that is going to do it for this episode. Big thank you again, Chris Baker. That's my hockey guy, man. Chris Baker's my hockey guy. Not just hockey. I like talking about a lot of things. That's why he is the first ever three-time featured guest on this podcast. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks to Sean Chandler as well. Excellent movie review of John Wick Chapter 3. Make sure you check out Sean Chandler's YouTube channel. Sean Chandler talks about. He does excellent work there. If you have not yet done so already, I invite you to subscribe to this podcast. You subscribe. New episodes automatically get sent directly to your phone, computer, laptop, iPad, whatever the hell it is that you use within just minutes of the release. Usually have a new show every Tuesday and Friday. Don't forget to rate and review the show. I know it sounds like a pain in the ass when I'm asking to do all this stuff, but I promise you, just taking a minute to do it, it really, really helps me grow this podcast tremendously. You could find this podcast, speaking of, 
pretty much anywhere that future award-winning podcasts are found. By the way, you can also subscribe to our relatively new YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube, type in Moranalytics Podcast, hit that subscribe button directly below it, that little bell directly to the right so you'll get notifications when I put something out. I've been putting highlight clips from current and past episodes on there, having a little bit of original audio content going up there as well. Going to be doing a lot more of that pretty soon. Maybe even a video or two down the road. Who knows? Last but not least, do not forget to follow me on Twitter at Pamarant Tweets. Thanks again for listening. I truly appreciate each and every single one of you that listened to my annoying voice for an hour or more twice per week. <laughs> I'll be back with a new episode on Friday. Lots to talk about. I'll catch you on the flippity flip. Bye.